following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the second chapter of the Old Testament book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah is the fourth book before the end of the Old Testament between the books of Habakkuk and Haggai, as I know that helps. Now I'm no prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, but I would venture to say that the book of Zephaniah is completely unfamiliar territory for many Christians today, including perhaps many in this room, which is a sad reality because of how profitable this little book actually is. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, profitable for teaching, profitable for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, while some might argue that some sections of Scripture are more profitable than others, the fact is that all Scripture is profitable when it comes to these four areas. It's profitable for teaching us, teaching us what is right, profitable for reproving us, when we are not right, profitable for correcting us in how to get right, and profitable for training us in how to stay right. And when we turn our attention to the Old Testament book of Zephaniah, we find all of these elements present in this little book. It teaches us, it reproves us, it corrects us, and it trains us in order that we might stay right. But it's not limited to these elements. The book of Zephaniah absolutely repudiates the view of God that regards him as a distant and uninvolved deity, uninvolved in human affairs. This book enforces the reality that the living God is one who hates violence and abhors corruption, especially in the name, in his name. It reminds us that God has a day in which he will restore his people and renew the world and sweep away everything that could ever threaten or bring ruin or devastation to his world or his people again. Zephaniah teaches us that God is a jealous God, a reality that is often distorted by those who do not believe in him and deem him unworthy of praise. You see, God's jealousy is his zealous protectiveness of all that is rightfully his, his name, his glory, his people, his sole right to receive worship and ultimate obedience, his world, his glorious city. 
People have a, have a hard time thinking of God's jealousy as one of his glorious attributes, his beautiful attributes. They have a hard time thinking that God's jealousy is a reason he should be praised. And that's because often they associate God's jealousy with the only jealousy they're aware of, the jealousy that tears apart so many relationships today. Because so often today, jealousy stems from insecurity. It stems from pride. What they fail to understand is that God's jealousy stems from a zealous protectiveness of everything that actually belongs to him. I say that again. It actually belongs to him. And often people are jealous because something or someone else comes into the picture and threatens things that don't belong to them. It threatens their glory threatens their pride, their worship, their praise, threatens them being in the spotlight. But God is zealously protective for what actually belongs to him. All glory, all praise, and all honor. Zephaniah, the prophet, tells us that in the fire of God's jealousy, all the earth will be consumed. For a full and sudden end, he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. All those who, because of the deluding impact of sin, refused to give glory and honor to him and thanksgiving to him and instead exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Zephaniah reminds us that although people question God's justice and his apparent inactivity when it comes to evil being allowed to flourish for a season in this world, Zephaniah reminds us that God will have the final word. Justice delayed is not justice denied. Zephaniah teaches us that those who humble themselves by lives of repentance and godliness will be exalted by God. But those who spend their lives exalting themselves, either openly or secretly, will be cast down and utterly humiliated when God returns to judge the world. Zephaniah points us to the day when God will once again dwell in the midst of his people and decisively defeat every last one of their enemies. And he will rejoice over his people with gladness. He will quiet them with his love. God Almighty will exult over his people with loud singing. We often think that Christianity is about us singing to God, but we will experience Yahweh himself singing loudly over his people. He loves his people. He will restore the fortunes of his people, Zephaniah tells us. And that's a reality that will ultimately reach its fulfillment in a gloriously renewed earth. Zephaniah, more than all the other prophets, fixes our attention on the day of Yahweh, the coming day of Yahweh. The prophets depicted this day as having two aspects. Number one, it will be a day of wail and woe, but it will also be a day of bliss and blessing. It will be a day of judgment and dread for those who despise the glory of God, but it will be a day of jubilation and delight for those whose hearts have been changed to treasure the glory of God. The prophets also depicted this day in two time frames. They used this language to describe God's judgment in a near sense, 
That is, that which was right around the corner in their day. But they also describe the day of the Lord in an eschatological end time sense as the final day when God returns to establish right order again. And it's upon us to study the context in order to determine, is he talking about this near day, near in terms of the prophet's time frame, or near in terms of one day is as a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years to the Lord kind of time frame. Now, this is why the message of this minor prophet is so profitable for us today. We can look back at history and see the day of the Lord fulfilled in the various judgments to which the prophets pointed But we also await the day of the Lord in its consummated sense, in its ultimate sense. It's this day that the writer to the Hebrews points us to when he urges Christians, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see The day drawing near. Scripture points us to this grand, glorious day. Christians gather on the Lord's day, the first day of the week, in order to prepare us for the coming day of the Lord. The prophet Zephaniah brought God's message of repentance and judgment to the people of Judah during the time of King Josiah who reigned from 640 to 609 BC. We see that although King Josiah would bring godly reform to the nation, there was a time either before or after these reforms when the people, the people to which the people that are being addressed by Zephaniah were complacent, they were idolatrous, and they were superstitious. It appears that the people in his day were also suffering from the same presumption that has almost always characterized the people of Israel. Over and over again, they took it for granted that because they were God's chosen nation, chosen people, they didn't need to worry about personal repentance or godliness or seeking to live by faith in God's word. And it was this sinful presumption, you remember, that John the Baptist confronted at the very beginning of his ministry. Matthew tells us that when John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. In this call to repentance, he says, don't you dare fall back on your lineage. Don't you dare fall back on your family line. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Jesus had to do with the same presumption on the part of the religious leaders. We're told in the eighth chapter of the Gospel of John that the religious leaders answered him, Abraham is our father. As if that settles the matter. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. What are those works? Obedience that flows out of a simple trust in the word of God. They were constantly falling back on their family ties, but the prophets, 
John the Baptist and even Christ himself were constantly seeking to wean them off of this presumption and point them towards personal repentance and trust in God. As we come to Zephaniah chapter 2 this morning, we come face to face with an urgent plea to seek the Lord before the day of the Lord. In verses 1 to 3. But then from verse 4 through the end of the chapter, Zephaniah warns of the judgment that will be poured out upon the nations surrounding Jerusalem. But scattered throughout this larger section of judgment from verse 4 through 15, the prophet offers glimmers of hope for the people of God who live according to the word of God. And so although there are two main sections in this chapter, I want to focus in and call your attention to four smaller sections within the chapter. In verses 1 to 3, we see a plea for unified repentance. In verses 4 and 5, we see a prediction of utter ruin. In verses 6 and 7, we see a promise of ultimate restoration. And in verses 8 through 15, we see a pledge of unavoidable retribution. And so I'd like to begin by considering with you verses 1, 2, and 3 as we consider a plea for unified repentance. Notice how the chapter begins. Gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation. Before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord." We see this plea for unified repentance. Unified in that he's calling the people to gather together. Very similar to the prophecy of Joel, calling the people, young and old, to come together to seek the Lord. This is a plea for unified repentance. Gather together. The word gathered here often in the Old Testament refers to the gathering of sticks uh, for fire, gathering straw, gathering for a fire. It's to come together. It's to acknowledge that judgment is coming, but there is hope. And he calls them a shameless nation. You see, this is the effect of sin and idolatry and complacency and presumption, is it creates a sense of shamelessness in the heart of a man and a woman. The more one walks in the darkness, the harder the conscience becomes, the harder the heart grows. And there's no shame when it comes to sin. There is only justifying sin, making excuses for one's sin, saying, I do this because you. I act this way because you. I act this way because of this. There's a shamelessness about the sinner apart from repentance. And what's interesting is he calls them this nation here, a word that's often referred to the Gentile nations in the Old Testament, and God is saying, identifying his people as 
Gentiles because of their covenant breaking. And notice the time frame, verse 2, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff. There is so much hope in that word before. Before, it denotes that time will not always be. It denotes that there will not always be a second and third chance. That the day of salvation is now. It's today. It's been said that today is God's day. The devil's day is tomorrow. And he wants you to hope in tomorrow. Oftentimes, people hope in tomorrow. They'll say things like, oh, I'll get right once I grow up a little bit. I'll get right with God once I begin to have a family and have more of an excuse to teach them about God. And I'll go to church in that day once I've had my fun and my fill. The problem is, as he says in the middle of verse 2, the day often passes away like chaff. Your life is a vapor, and my life is a vapor. And tomorrow is not promised. Consider the statistics that every three seconds, someone in this world passes into eternity. Right now, someone's dying. Another. And then another. They're passing out of this world at that rate. And one of those clicks, one of those three-second markers has your name on it, as well as mine. He is calling the people to gather before the decree takes effect. What decree? The decree of judgment. It's interesting that God's decree still gives room for repentance. You see, God has decreed, Acts 17, 31 tells us, that there will be a day when he comes back to judge the world in righteousness through Jesus Christ, but before that decree takes effect, there is the possibility of mercy. There is the possibility of receiving the gift of forgiveness. There is the possibility of being hidden in the day of the Lord and his judgment. Notice the the language here. Before the day passes away like chaff, You can imagine a farmer out there gathering his wheat and what's left is the chaff. And all it takes is a little gust of wind to blow that chaff away. And that's all it takes for your life to pass away. We think so high of ourselves. So so, so, we think so so tall and and, and exalted when we think of ourselves. We, We view ourselves in such a lofty, exalted way. And yet God sees your life as just mere chaff, just waiting to be blown away, waiting for the spirit that he gave you during this lifetime to return to him. That breath of life that's borrowed, he's going to take it back with just a gust of wind. How frail your life is. Let that humble you. Let that cause dependence to well up in your heart on this good God who's given you this borrowed breath for his glory. Before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Zephaniah is constantly calling our attention to the wrath and anger of God. We're told in the Psalms that God is angry with the wicked every day. 
We're told that even as God offers eternal life to those who believe, John 3.36 tells us that the wrath of God abides, remains on everyone who is not upon, is not, has not called upon the, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The wrath of God abides on unbelieving people. Oftentimes we are uncomfortable because of this character trait in God. And oftentimes we're blind to our own twistedness. You see, we believe that we have the right to be angry, but not God. We see abuse. We see divorce. We see idolatry. We see violence. We see school shootings. And anger wells up in our hearts, and rightfully so. But then when it comes to God's anger, we get all mad and protest, and we picket at the gates of heaven, saying, you don't deserve to be angry. Friends, he has no sin in him. He has a perfect love for righteousness, something that you and I don't even have yet. He has a perfect hatred for wickedness. And as Steve alluded to in his prayer, there are times when we still love our sin, shamefully so, but not God. And so his anger is a perfect anger, anger not tainted by any kind of pride or self-preservation. He's not threatened by anything. Nothing's going to come and take him off his throne. It's an anger that wells up out of a love for that which is good and beautiful. And sin, by its very nature, attacks and assaults that which is good and orderly and beautiful. We are told of the anger of the Lord in Revelation chapter 6 when Christ returns as a lamb. The great day of their wrath has come, John says, and who can stand? Can you imagine the meek and lowly Jesus who hung on that cross without offering up a single complaint against his enemies, led like a lamb to the slaughter, now reversing everything and and returning now to slaughter and it says in that day that people will be hiding begging for the mountains and the caves to fall in on them in order to hide them from his face his face that face that will be the beatific vision for the people of God will be the source of absolute dread for the enemies of God he is coming back in righteous holy anger to bring justice at last. And now notice the plea. The first imperative is to gather. Gather, gather two times. Now verse 3. Seek the Lord. Search for him. Seek to find him. Now this is interesting because we're not told if Zephaniah prophesied before Josiah's reforms or after the reforms. But basically what had happened in Josiah's day is that it had gotten so bad in terms of the apostasy and how far they had strayed from God that the law was nowhere to be found. In other words, to put it in modern terms, a Bible was nowhere to be found in Josiah's day. Nowhere to be found. Not in the temple, nowhere. Imagine, just for the sake of the argument, as I heard put to me this week. Imagine tomorrow 
the guy who comes and cleans this facility is digging through that closet back there and he finds a Bible. And he returns it to me on Sunday morning. And I bring this Bible up. And let's say you've never even heard of this thing in your lifetime because of how dark things have been. But we've been doing church. We've been gathering for worship, but yet not around a Bible or because of a Bible. And as I introduce this thing, maybe some of the old folks in here would say, I remember we used to use that thing at church. I remember we used to open that Bible at church. That's basically what had happened in Zephaniah's day, in in Josiah's day, is that someone had found the law. It was uncovered, revealed in the providence of God, and they began to use it again. They began to teach it again. And there was a temporary revival and a reformation in Josiah's time. But somewhere in that time frame, Zephaniah arises and he's calling people to seek the Lord. We don't know if it was after this discovery or before, but if it was after, we know that this seeking of the Lord had to do with seeking God and his word, seeking to know his will. The word seek is the opposite of complacency. It's the opposite of just sitting around doing nothing. To seek the Lord is to actively engage in desiring to know him, to know his will, to know something of his presence. That's what it means to seek the Lord. And notice who he is addressing, verse 3. All you humble of the land, you who are lowly, You who are meek, you who truly understand that you are on borrowed time, that you are breathing borrowed breath, that you are not the one who is providing that power to your heart that is pumping blood through your body. You who have been awakened to know just how sinful you are, you humble of the land, who do his just commands. These were people, no doubt, that understood something of the law. And they walked in the law. They walked in the light of the law. The Mosaic law given by Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 20. The word seek appears again. Notice, seek righteousness. That means seek right living. Seek to be right with God. Seek to be right with others. Because you can't be right with God if you are wrong with others. If you are not living right with others, you can't be right with God. Jesus taught this. He says, if you go to the altar, and he's speaking in, because he still at his time was under the Mosaic Covenant. We don't, we don't offer sacrifices anymore, but it, he says, if you come to the altar and you're there, you realize that your brother has something against you, go and fix what you have with your brother and then bring your gift to the altar. Do righteousness. Seek righteousness. Seek to align your life with God's word. That's what righteousness means, is a life aligned with the precepts and instructions of God's word. And lastly, seek humility. We're called to seek the Lord, but then he gives us instructions on what that looks like. To seek the Lord is to humble ourselves. It's to do his just commands. It's to seek right living, to rightly align ourselves with God's revealed will. And it says here, seek humility. It's something to be sought. It's not something natural that wells up in us. It's not some natural character trait that we're born with 
or reborn with. It's something that needs to be cultivated. It's something that we need to be brought back to. It's something that the people needed to be brought back to. It's to seek for something implies that it has been lost or that it is lost. They had lost their relationship with Yahweh. They had lost right living and they had lost humility because they had given way to pride and presumption and sin. Humility is rightly viewing yourself as God defines you. Humility is not demeaning yourself. Humility is not devaluing yourself. Humility is not beating yourself up all the time. In fact, it can be argued that those who are constantly depreciating themselves and beating themselves up are actually obsessed with themselves. Humility means that you have a right view of yourself, that you're an image bearer, a living idol, if you will, made in the image and likeness of God, breathing his breath, being filled with his life, dependent on his power, understanding that you live and move and have your being in him, that there's nothing you can do apart from him, even the power, as Ecclesiastes says, to enjoy life comes from him. That meaningful friendships come from him. It's all him. And it's all from him. And humility is the understanding of that. And it's posturing yourself under his sovereign hand, under his sovereign control, under his sovereign grace and mercy. It's not exalting yourself. It's not centering yourself as the center of attention all the time, either openly or secretly. You see, people think that in order to be proud, you have to have this outgoing, in front of everyone kind of mentality. But friends, there are people who aren't out in the open, but who have so exalted themselves within and that pride and that self-exaltation is just as filthy and disgusting in the eyes of God as those who are openly and overtly proud and exalted. It's just hidden from man, but never hidden from God. He calls them to seek humility. And notice the motivation at the end of verse 3. Perhaps. Oh, that word is so, so pregnant with meaning. That word alone guards the sovereign mercy and grace of God. The word perhaps tells us that grace should not be taken for granted, lest it be cheapened and trivialized. Perhaps you may be hidden. Perhaps you might receive mercy. He's introducing here the possibility of mercy. You see, they weren't entitled to escape the coming judgment. But he says, perhaps, just maybe, you will be hidden on the day of the Lord's anger. I believe he's referring here to not the eschatological ultimate final day, but the day that was just around the corner when they would be led into exile within their lifetime by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Perhaps in that day, God will shelter you. It's not guaranteed, but perhaps it, it may happen. 
You see, this word perhaps is such a, such a, a hopeful word. We're not to presume upon God's mercy or his divine favor. We're to hope in it, but we're not to presume upon it. And so many people today presume upon God's mercy. They'll say things like, well, I'm just going to give in to my sin right now because I know that I'll just be able to go and ask God for forgiveness. Yeah, how many times of doing that before you find yourself so hardened that each time it's harder to go back to God to the point where you no longer go back to God and you find yourself as a reprobate. You find yourself as one given over and hardened and given over, like Romans 1 says, given over, given over, given over. No desire to seek forgiveness anymore. That's what happens when we presume upon God's mercy and take it for granted. He says, perhaps, perhaps you may be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Repentant sinners, one author writes, should always be surprised at God's forgiveness. The word perhaps protects God's sovereignty, his choice to forgive or not in any and every case. Perhaps. God is a God who allows time to repent. That's good news this morning. He called the people in Zephaniah's day to it, and he's calling us to today. You say, I've repented already. Well, friends, the evidence that you have repented before is that your life is a life of repentance. A life of being corrected and rebuked and disciplined by a loving father so that your life continues to be reshaped and molded around the will of your kind father. It's a lifestyle of repentance. This also teaches us that God knows how to deliver his people so that they are not swept away with the ungodly when God's wrath is unleashed. God knows how to shelter his people. Remember, the name Zephaniah means Yahweh has hidden. And that's the promise here, or the potential here. Perhaps you may be hidden. Perhaps you may be tucked away, hidden, concealed, when God's anger is poured out. Repentance is a message of good news for sinners in this world. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, says, After Paul's shipwreck, he swam to shore on planks and broken pieces of the ship. And he references Acts 27.44. And he goes on to say, In Adam we all suffered shipwreck. And repentance is the only plank left us after the shipwreck to swim to heaven. Isn't it good that God has left us that floating plank of repentance after our shipwreck of falling into sin? God has always made a way, even in the day of Solomon, Second Chronicles 7.14. Solomon, God through Solomon records this, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. That was part of the Old Testament promise. That's not for America. We were never the people of God, as much as we want to call ourselves that. This was to Israel, God saying, if my people who are called by my name, humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn. That word is 
denotes repentance, from their wicked ways, then I will hear and forgive and heal their land. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who said, repentance means that you realize that you are guilty. You're a vile sinner in the presence of God, that you deserve the wrath and punishment of God, and that you're hell-bound. Repentance means that you begin to realize that this thing called sin is in you, and you long to get rid of it. And you turn your back on it in every shape and every form. You renounce the world, whatever the cost. The world is in its mind and outlook. The world in its mind and outlook as well as its practice. And you deny yourself and take up the cross and go after Christ. Repentance means that your nearest and dearest in the whole world may call you a fool or say that you have religious mania. You may have to suffer financially, but it makes no difference. That is repentance, says Lloyd-Jones. This is a call. This is a plea for unified repentance. Let's go to the second heading, where we see in verses 4 and 5 a prediction of utter ruin. Notice the motivation here, verse 4. He begins with this connecting word, for. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Carathites! The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will, utter, I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. Here we have a prediction of utter ruin, utter desolation, meaning it's no longer inhabited. It's interesting that the motivation for Jerusalem to repent is found in the destruction of Jerusalem's neighbors. Do you see that? Seek the Lord, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden. When God's anger is revealed, why should you do all of that? Because judgment's coming next door. It's up at your door. It's up at your doorstep. Not quite in your house yet, but up to your very doorstep. That's the idea here. The surrounding nations, the surrounding nations would be destroyed because of their sin. And, and it's God's way through Zephaniah saying, you get right because I'm bringing judgment to your front door. Your neighbors will be consumed. Notice the language here. Desertion, desolation, driven out, uprooted, destroyed until no inhabitant is left. And notice the means of the destruction here. Verse 5 the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. You see, the same word that brings salvation is the same word that brings destruction. The same word that gives way to mercy and grace is the same word that brings God's decree of utter desolation. Many of us like to quote Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 when we talk about the multifaceted beauty of God's word, and we often quote it out of context. 
will say things like, oh yeah, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Not realizing that the context of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 is that of destruction. Because the verses that go beforehand say this. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active. You see the connection. The people in Joshua's day, the people of Israel, even before, they failed to enter because of their disobedience and they were destroyed. And as the motivation to enter the rest and not fall into that same sin of disobedience, he says, for God's word is living and active and it's sharp, sharper than any two-edged sword. When we see in Revelation 19, Jesus returning with that sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, that is not the Lord Jesus cutting his enemies and making them Christians. He's coming back to judge and make war with that sword. Remember, early on in the chapter, before the decree takes effect. The decree of what? The decree of God's word. The decree issued forth from his mouth. You see, once God's word is set against you, there's no hope. The only word to describe that misery is this three-letter word at the beginning of verse 5, woe. Woe. The word woe means it's over. It's over. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Carathites. The word of the Lord is against you, and no one can turn back his word. God's word will not fall to the ground. God's, not, God's word will not return void. It will not return empty. It will accomplish the purposes for which he sent it, either for salvation or destruction. Our words fall. God's words never fall. Our words fail. God's words are always upheld by his sovereign power. But notice the thoroughness of God's judgment. Gaza deserted, Ashkelon desolated, Ashdod's people driven out at noon, perhaps referring to a coming invasion. And Ekron shall be uprooted, not just mowed over, but uprooted. Devouring root as well, as well as the branch. We come now to verses 6 and 7. We see here a promise of ultimate restoration. A promise of ultimate restoration. And you, verse 6, you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds. And folds for flocks. Oftentimes in the prophets, they employed pastoral imagery or shepherd-like imagery to depict fertility and peace for the remnant of God's people. You can look at Zephaniah 2.7 here. You can look at chapter 3, verse 13. You can look at Isaiah chapter 5, verse 17. Isaiah 65, verse 10. 
The prophets especially use this kind of language to foretell how it will be in the new creation when God restores his people, when God's people roam what was once enemy territory. These once fortified cities, God will sweep them away, and in their place, he will plant vineyards and there will be pasture lands for his people to roam and be satisfied in his goodness and in his presence. And that's exactly what he's promising here. Your seacoast shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. Verse 7 says, the seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah on which they shall graze, future tense, they will graze in those lands one day. And in the houses of Ashkelon, they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. That word mindful denotes his covenant promise, his covenant faithfulness. Doesn't mean that he ever forgot them, but that they are mindful. He is mindful of his people, always mindful of his people, ever mindful of his people. His people are his treasured possession. His people are the apple of his eye. God has always had a gracious purpose for his people. And in that day, once he sweeps every godless city away, the meek will inherit the earth. The humble will be exalted in the land. The Lord God will be mindful of his people, his promise that Abraham would inherit the world You see, we're so caught up in this little piece of real estate there in the Middle East, Palestinian territory, when if you read Romans chapter 4, you know the inheritance that was promised to Abraham? It says that he would be heir of the world. He would inherit the world. And God will be mindful of his people in that day, and he will restore their fortunes. By the way, this restoration has already begun. Reminds us of the already not yet aspect of Scripture. If you turn with me quickly to Acts chapter 15, I want you to see something of of how this has already begun. Acts chapter 15. We forget just how big of a deal it was that Gentiles were being saved in the days of the early church. We take it for granted because you were probably evangelized by a Gentile. You were probably, you know, converted by a fellow Gentile. So, of course, we Gentiles are saved. But in the early church, there was so much controversy. So much so that in order for God to really show his believing Israelites, guys like Peter and James and John and Uh, The others in the early church who looked to Peter and James and John as pillars in the early church. We see an instance in Acts chapter 8 where the Samaritans are coming to faith in Christ. Samaritans? You remember the tension in John chapter 4. Samaritans and Jews did not get along at all. And so now that Samaria is believing the gospel and being brought into the kingdom and family of God, it was unheard of. And there was so much controversy, so much so they they had to have that council in Jerusalem that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs along with the believing Jews. God creating one new man in place of the two, Jew and Gentile. You remember there, they believed the gospel 
and before they received the Holy Spirit, Peter and John had to come and see the work that was going on there. And it was then that they received the Spirit. And then from then, the apostles went forth telling the others that, hey, they received the same Spirit we did. We witnessed it. We saw the Spirit of the living God come upon these formerly disgusting Samaritans. We think it's some we think it's some form of oh maybe they didn't do something right that they didn't receive the spirit when they believed no what God's doing through the apostles is showing that his spirit is coming upon whom the Jews regarded as filthy dogs and animals that same tension is still present in Acts chapter 15 and as James is speaking as Peter is speaking there at the Jerusalem council we'll pick it up in in verse 14. You see, after they had finished speaking, James replied, verse 13, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And notice this. And with this, with what? God visiting the Gentiles with salvation The words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And what he does here is he quotes from Amos chapter 9 and Jeremiah chapter 12. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who were called by my name says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. What's interesting is he quotes Amos chapter 9, verse 11, which says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. Do you see what's happening here? All this restoration language, rebuilding the ruins, The Apostle James stands up in the midst of all these people and says, this is what's happening. It's begun here. It's begun in Jews and Gentiles being brought into the kingdom and God making a people for his name. The words of the prophets agree just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, rebuild its ruins. You see, this rebuilding of the true people of God has already begun. We're not gonna, we haven't seen the fulfillment of it yet, but it's already begun. It's already begun. Let's go back to Zephaniah, where we are considering verses 6 and 7, the promise of ultimate restoration. You, O seacoast, shall be pastures, and meadows shall be there for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. The Lord God will be mindful of his people and restore their fortunes. You see, this restoration has already begun, but we have not yet seen the consummation of it. When the meek, comprised of Jew and Gentile, will inherit all of this formerly, this, this territory that was former, formerly uh, enemy territory. And now we come to the final heading this morning, verses 8 through 15, where we see a pledge of unavoidable retribution. Notice why God is bringing this judgment. 
What, what happens here is, is in, verse, in these verses of judgment, the prophet is laying out a four-pointed compass of punishment. He addresses those who were to the west of them on the seacoast and those who were to the right of them. And now what he's going to do is come to the south and then end with the north, Assyria. It's a four-pointed compass of woe and judgment. He says, I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. You see, God has always been and will always be the defender of his people. He's always mindful of his people, always mindful of their persecutions, always mindful of their tribulations, and always mindful of their enemies. God says, I've heard them taunting my people. Verse 9 says, Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom, and the Ammonites like Gomorrah. Pointing back to Genesis 19, a land that's completely destroyed and uninhabitable, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits, and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. God says, I am responding to their pride and their arrogance towards my people. Verse 11, the Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth. What a phrase. Starving out all the gods of the earth. Now, we have to ask ourselves, friends, when will this be? We're finding language of restoration, remnants returning. We're finding the people of God inhabiting the seacoast and these territories that were once enemy territories. We have to ask ourselves, when is this going to happen? Because it certainly hasn't happened in history yet. We haven't seen all the gods of the earth, the idols of the earth, famished and laid bare. It's the reality of Isaiah 2. It's that coming day of the Lord when the Lord will remove every idol from its place and he will have a people for his name. In that day, the Lord alone will be exalted and there will no longer be any idols in this world. Verse 11. And to him, notice, shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations, the Gentiles. This is glorious. This is new covenant reality unfolding here in the Old Testament. God bringing a Gentile people, bringing in nations that were once despised, nations that were once not a people, as the prophet says, and now being referred to as the people of God. You also, O Cushites, he goes south now, modern-day Suzanne, or Sudan, sorry, Sudan, shall be slain by my sword. Again, I believe this is a reference to his word, as so often, whether in Revelation, the book of Hebrews, his sword is his word. Verse 13, and he will stretch out his hand against the north 
Now he goes to the last place, Assyria, the world power at that time. And he will destroy Assyria and will make Nineveh, its capital, a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst and all kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the, in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. place known for its craftsmanship will no longer be known for that. Verse 15, this Assyria, Nineveh, capital, this is the exultant city that lived securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. Notice now here, he speaks as if this has already happened because it's as good as done. He pronounces the woe on all the neighbors of Jerusalem back earlier in the chapter. And because he pronounces this woe, it's as good as already done. What a desolation she has become. That's terrifying. This is an unavoidable retribution. And notice that the retribution stems from God protecting his people. Yes, these individual nations were comprised of sinners who were rebellious against God, but rebellious to the point of taunting and threatening constantly throughout history the nation of Israel in Zephaniah's day. We find something about this city and these people in Assyria. It says in verse 15, they were an exultant city, very proud, very lofty, very quick to exalt themselves. Secondly, it says that they lived securely. The idea is that they thought themselves impenetrable, unapproachable, undefeatable. You can see their pride here. And notice that all of this pride and arrogance and presumption and delusion culminates in what the people said in their hearts. Verse 15, I am. And there is no other. Those of us who even know a little bit of our Bibles understand that this is something that God said back to, back to Moses in the early chapters of Exodus. Moses sees the burning bush, turns aside to look at it, and God says, I am who I am, the great I am. And what has Assyria done? She has deified herself, made herself God, claimed deity, claimed to be immovable, unconquerable, undefeatable. By the way, this little phrase here, I am and there is no one else, is the basic confession of faith of every enemy of God. I am, and there's no one else. I am the center of the universe, and there's no one else. I am the one worthy of worship and adoration, and no one else. I am the determiner of what's right and what's wrong. I don't need a God telling me what's right and wrong. I am the one who calls the shots. I am the one who makes the decrees. I am the one who is in control. 
This is the confession of faith of every rebel sinner who has ever lived. I am, and there is no one else. God says, what a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. This is a picture of utter humiliation here. Shaking his fist saying, look at this once formerly exultant city, laid bare. You see, Jesus taught in a number of places that those who exalt themselves will be humbled. It's a guarantee. You spend your life exalting yourself, either openly or secretly, God will ensure that you are utterly cast down and humiliated on that day. And we know that this decree came to pass. Assyria was eventually destroyed. This happened because the word of God declared it. As we come to a close this morning, we have seen very clearly that God is a God who allows room for repentance. We see that God is a God who is committed to his glory and his honor and has no rivals. And so I want to leave you with three thoughts as we move forward today. Our response to this chapter should be, number one, to commit to walking with people who are likewise calling on the name of the Lord. If he calls the people in verse one to gather together to seek the Lord, to seek righteousness and to seek humility, that goes to show that God delights when a people come together with a unified repentance, a unified purpose to walk together in one voice declaring the glory of God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, exalting God as one people. We are to commit to walking together along with all those who are calling upon the name of the Lord from a pure heart. Whether it's this church body or another church body, find yourself a church body that you can plug into and commit to those people, commit to seeking God, commit to seeking righteousness, and to commit to seeking humility, cultivating humility. Why? Because destruction is coming. It's unavoidable. The decree is already there. It's just a matter of time for the decree to come to pass. Number two, we're to continue individually seeking God seeking his righteousness and seeking humility. And lastly, we are to learn from God's judgment and his discipline that he exercises towards others. In other words, verse 4 is the motivation, the motivate the motivation for the people in Zephaniah's day to get right is that He's already, he's already going to come for the nations around Jerusalem. Over and over again, God calls us to learn from those who have been destroyed. Jesus said in the simplest sermon he could have probably ever preached, three words, remember Lot's wife. She turned back and was consumed. She was, she, she was turned into a pillar of salt in that very moment serving as an everlasting monument of those who turn back from following the voice of Yahweh. 
Learn from God's discipline on others. Learn from David sinning with Bathsheba, murdering Uriah, losing that child. Consequences of sin are eternal, but they are also temporal. God brings temporary consequences upon you for your rebellion and for your lack of repentance. Sometimes it can come in the form of financial struggle. Sometimes it can come in the form of cancer, death, loss, whatever it is. God knows how to get a hold of his people. One of the greatest motivations for godly living is not tempting God to discipline us in severe ways. Just staying, as Jude says, keeping yourself in the love of God, praying in the Holy Spirit, building yourself up in your most holy faith, and waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Be reminded that your sin will find you out. Your sin will always find you out. There is no such thing as hidden sin. Your sin will find you out because God sees and understands and knows and will bring it to the light. Remember, as Galatians says, that God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. God will not be mocked. Until then, until the day of the Lord, let us seek to cultivate humility. Not only individual Humility, humility on an individual level, but humility on a corporate level, which can only be made possible by us individually seeking humility. A proud church cannot be comprised of a bunch of individual humble people. How do we cultivate humility? Reflect often on the wonder of the cross. How do we cultivate humility? Acknowledge Every day, your dependence upon God and your need for Him. How do we cultivate humility? Express thankfulness and gratefulness frequently before God. How do we cultivate humility? By exercising the spiritual disciplines. Prayer before the throne of God. Study of the Word of God. Worship of the living God. Seize every opportunity, whether it's your time commuting, your time walking, to dwell upon the word of God, the attributes of God, the will of God. How do you cultivate humility? By casting your cares upon God, knowing that he cares for you. End each day with a glorious transfer of transferring all glory and praise to God. Before you go to sleep, acknowledge God's gift of sleep. Acknowledge that He has granted you this gift to recharge as a reminder that you are not all-sufficient, but that he is, because he's a God who neither slumbers nor sleeps. Focus on the attributes of God. Focus on the doctrines of grace. Focus on the doctrine of sin. This one seems simple, but it's in the Bible. Learn to enjoy life. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. Enjoy your life. That is your portion from God. Another way to cultivate humility is to identify evidences of God's grace in other people. When was the last time you openly commended someone for evidences of grace in their life? When was the last time you openly acknowledged someone else's talents, someone else's giftedness in the providence of God? 
Or are you so focused? Are you so protective of your talents and threatened by anyone else that might come and direct the spotlight off of you? Oh, friends, we need to learn to acknowledge God's grace in other people's lives and celebrate those things because we're members of one body and the body cannot be comprised of just you and your gifts. It's not about you. We're part of a body. We cultivate humility by not only identifying evidences of grace in others, but on the opposite end of the spectrum, not being vultures. I was reminded by an article I read recently that vultures are the first creatures to quickly spot roadkill. Carry on. Oftentimes vultures arise in the church and they're the first to identify everything that's wrong. The first to, 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 to see everything that, that they don't like in others. Things that bother them in others. We need to depend on the Lord for this. Encourage and serve others every day. Invite and pursue correction. How often do you invite correction? How often do you pursue correction? It's easy to try to correct others all the time. But how, how well are you at being corrected? I don't think any of us is good at it, right? We need to learn to be corrected and to welcome God's correction through others. To say, I need grace. I need to learn. I need to be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. And lastly, you want to cultivate humility and you want to, war, you, you want to fend off pride. Put pride to death is by this. Consider often how much mercy you've been given. Consider how much you've been forgiven. Consider how much, you're, how much of, consider that your debt has been paid, right? The parable of the unforgiving servant. Being forgiven an unfathomable debt and yet requiring pocket change from those who offend you. People that are quick to demand from others don't realize how much mercy they've been given. Don't realize how much they've been forgiven. And that creates humility. And so as we prepare for the day of the Lord, let us cultivate these things.